Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 76 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a review of 2018 AML Enforcement and Compliance Trends. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Before we begin, uh, two issues. First, please like and comment on our podcast. Uh, We appreciate positive ratings and comments. We are located on iTunes and Spotify. Second, my law firm, the Volkoff Law Group, offers ethics and compliance legal services, including anti-money laundering programs for financial and non-financial businesses. We've worked with financial institutions on program assessments, SARS procedures and filings, correspondent banking relationships, and customer due diligence and KYC compliance issues, as well as transaction monitoring. Also, we've assisted non-financial businesses with design and implementation of AML compliance programs, which are usually focused on third-party payments and trade-based money laundering issues. If interested in discussing uh, some of the services we offer, please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Well, thank you for uh, joining me. Uh, Yet another retrospective on 2018, um, but I, I do think AML enforcement, just like FCPA enforcement, just like sanctions enforcement. Obviously, there's a lot of sanctions and AML convergence in enforcement um, is important. We've also seen a lot of important developments in the use of the uh, AML criminal offenses, for example, in FCPA cases uh, to target uh, recipients of bribes because under the FCPA, the uh, recipients are not covered. Um, So 2018 was another significant year for uh, anti-money laundering enforcement and compliance. And if we look at sort of the current trends, uh, we saw many important developments. Um, We've seen some large money laundering scandals break, especially in Europe, beginning with the uh, Dansk Bank scandal, which is ongoing, uh, in which it was recently reported that Dansk Bank, for example, is going to commit uh, $300 million to rebuilding their compliance program. In the U.S., we saw uh, the U.S. Bank Corp. and Rob- Rabobank uh, enforcement actions in the beginning of the year, and we've seen some continuing uh, enforcement. And the first criminal AML case against a broker-dealer, which was here in the United States, uh, involving uh, central states and a uh, deferred prosecution agreement uh, and prosecutions. On the regulatory front, uh, we see the SEC and the CFTC continuing to sort of wrap their respective hands around cryptocurrency regulation. Uh, global regulators are continuing to struggle with cryptocurrency issues. Uh, the path for regulation of digital currencies, from in my view, appears inevitable uh, against concerns that uh, regulations may stifle innovative use of blockchain technologies uh, as an e- economic driver. Uh, the fact is we're seeing fraudsters and terrorists and uh, thefts from exchanges, and there's going to be more and more pressure, I think, to uh, mainstream cryptocurrency operations uh, and, not, uh, and really not allow... Uh, the continued sort of unfettered development of some of these uh, schemes as well. So um, let's look, we'll probably see sort of more regulatory uh, actions taken against uh, cryptocurrency uh, type issues and exchanges in particular. 
Um, in the global context, the EU uh, issued the fifth money laundering directive, which gives firms until January 2020 to implement its new obligations with a real focus on beneficial ownership requirements, uh, use of electronic identification checks, for example, for digital identity technologies, uh, clarification of politically exposed persons what, who are PEPs uh, across the member states uh, so that we can classify specific roles and positions that fall within the PEP definition. Um, in the UK, going back to cryptocurrency for a minute, there was something interesting, which was uh, cryptocurrency exchanges are going to be required to register with the Financial Conduct Authority by January 2020. And as a result, exchange operators are going to be required to conduct customer due diligence, submit suspicious transactions reports. So within the U.S., um, probably the biggest news in 2018 continued to be FinCEN's customer due diligence rule, which was effective uh, in May of 2018. And uh, under the rule, uh, it applies to banks, brokers or dealers in securities, mutual funds, futures commission merchants, and including brokers and commodities. Um, the Covered financial institutions have to use risk-based procedures to conduct the requisite due diligence and at least some of the same elements as those used to verify the identity of uh, individual customers under customer identification program requirements. The CDD rule, though, added, in my view, the most significant aspect of it was adding a new fifth pillar to AML program that must be included in every AML program. Uh, in requiring appropriate risk-based procedures for conducting ongoing customer due diligence uh, and to understand the nature and purpose of customer relationships and to conduct ongoing monitoring to identify and report suspicious transactions and on a risk basis to maintain and update customer information. I mean, the old, and my point here is that there's going to be more and more emphasis globally on the importance of ultimate beneficial owners and the need to increase transparency. So it's uh, moving up the agenda, and, it, and frankly, it is uh, at the top of everyone's agenda. And in 2018, for example, it was a focus of the G20 uh, summit where the leaders made clear a desire to implement uh, quote, international standards and the availability of ultimate beneficial ownership information, close quote. So I think there's going to see, you're going to see in 2019 a uh, continuation of this movement on ultimate beneficial ownership. A couple of other regulatory uh, notes, uh, two other interesting uh, points I wanted to make. The New York Department of Financial Services Transaction Monitoring um, in April of 2018, for example, was the first filing deadline for annual certifications under Part 504 of the New York DFS regulations. So the rule requires institutions to maintain a monitoring program for potential violations of BSA and AML laws and a filtering program to identify and stop uh, transactions with entities or individuals that are sanctioned by OFAC. So the rule requires each regulated institution to file an annual compliance certification, which has to include a resolution of the institution's board of directors or a formal compliance finding by a senior officer, obviously ramping up uh, 
uh, the importance of compliance. One final note in terms of regulatory developments uh, is in the UK, we had introduced a new tool for investigating possible money laundering uh, by allowing the National Crime Agency the and the Serious Fraud Office and others to apply for what's called an Unexplained Wealth Order, UWO. And uh, a UWO requires an owner of property to explain how he or she obtained the property and the source of funds used to acquire it, and the court may issue a UWO, uh, unexplained wealth or, uh, order, if it determines that the respondent's income is insufficient to afford the property and the respondent is a politically exposed person or PEP or is connected to serious crime. So while the UWO itself does not give authorities the power to recover assets, information discovered under a UWA may be used in a civil or criminal action under other existing laws, such as those pertaining to the recovery of proceeds of crime. In uh, February 2018, the NCA, National Crime Agency, secured the first UWOs under the new law for two properties uh, worth approximately 22 million pounds and suspected of being uh, owned by a PEP, along with an interim freezing order prohibiting the sale or transfer of the properties. An interesting development, to say the least, in terms of tracking down uh, unexplained wealth and proceeds from, let's say, corruption uh, or money laundering schemes. So all of the, in, in, in my view, the combination of enforcement and regulatory actions has basically translated into ever-increasing pressure on global companies, financial institutions, and other financial actors to elevate AML compliance increase investment in AML compliance programs, especially AML compliance technologies. For non-financial institutions, uh, the issue usually boils down to uh, risks in uh, receiving third-party payments. Uh, and there's going to be greater emphasis, in my view, on uh, third-party payments uh, in the receipt of those from unexplained parties and what kind of due diligence people do with regard to third-party uh, payments that are received from entities different than the entity that, in fact, uh, uh, received the goods or services. So it's something to think about. Um, in terms of compliance trends, I think uh, there was an interesting order that, or a statement that was put out in December of 2018 by FinCEN and the uh, federal banking agencies, and it was a joint statement encouraging banks to consider evaluate, and where appropriate, responsibly implement innovative approaches to meet their BSA AML compliance uh, obligations. They uh, expressed an openness to engagement and dialogue with bank management on innovative approaches uh, that increase the effectiveness of these programs. And we're seeing new technologies in the fintech area, as it's called, uh, and banks are going to be uh, under increasing pressure to test and potentially use these new technologies um, while maintaining the overall effectiveness of their BSA AML programs. Um, one of the more promising compliance trends for 2019 is going to be the prospect, and it, can, it started in 2018, or it moved forward in 2018, was increased information sharing among financial institutions. Uh, information sharing, particularly for the smaller banks, 
uh, is going to be a key component, I think, of the certain initiatives and joint initiatives from, by FinCEN and the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force in uh, the UK uh, to basically bridge the gap among different players and try to make a big uh, difference. Um, information sharing has been a success among regulators and banks, and I think you're going to see it try to become more prevalent uh, with smaller financial institutions. Uh, fintechs are going to drive the demand for automated AML solutions, uh, and we're seeing increasing consumer adoption and with large transaction volumes. Uh, this competitive uh, fintech climate, it, I think we're going to see more firms, more companies moving to automate their AML practices to scale even faster. Here, the fact, the real significant motivation is because the sheer amount of false positives uh, which get generated by old data and technology. And obviously, uh, a lot of false positives means um, more difficult to onboard customers, process payments, and you need in your costs and overhead and employees uh, in compliance efforts are going to become more complicated. So fintech is sort of uh, being touted as the magic, magic bullet here. Um, and so there's just basically a desire to develop high-quality data, and we're going to see uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning tools, and those are going to be the key to effective automation of AML risk management and reduction of these false positives. So 2019 is going to be a big year when automation starts to um, become even adopted on a greater scale for AML programs. So we're going to look to see what fintech solutions are out there, uh, and we're going to see the, a greater sort of uh, adoption of them in sort of catching illicit financial schemes. The other part of that is that there's going to be sophistication, greater sophistication in trans mo transaction monitoring solutions, and those will become a necessity. Financial regulators are placing an increased focus on monitoring of AML risk activities, and they want institutions to adopt proper trans transaction monitoring processes. So regulators are raising their expectations, and they want to see a system in place, an effective system in place, that's going to work in terms of monitoring. Uh, we've already seen how the New York uh, Department of Financial Services requires a certification in this area, but there's going to be new uh, and even better transaction monitoring software platforms which are going to help financial institutions to sort of configure or and implement uh, certain monitoring scenarios, analyze data more efficiently, and separate those suspicious activities from false uh, positives. One uh, legislative development was on, in Congress. There was a bipartisan support um, being expressed to modernize the BSA and otherwise make BSA AML compliance more effective. Uh, there was no legislation that was actually approved by Congress, but uh, the beginning of hearings and proposals, uh, this will start to gain some momentum, and we may see uh, further actions in 2019 in this area, although I don't think that we'll see any sort of firm legislation come through for a little while, uh, a few years in that area, but it's something to watch uh, over. 
in the sanctions area in uh, AML enforcement um, and compliance, uh, please uh, keep your keep your uh, eyes and ears open because uh, the Treasury Department is going to be issuing uh, guidance on effective economic sanctions compliance programs. Uh, they announced this in December of 2018 that they're going to be coming out with something in 2019, which uh, should include, you know, ensuring that senior management is committed to compliance, conducting frequent uh, risk assessments, developing and deploying uh, internal controls, uh, engaging in testing and auditing, and ensuring that all relevant personnel are uh, provided tailored training. So I thought I would, uh, that's sort of the first half overview, and I wanted to spend now some time looking at some of the a major AML enforcement actions and trends from 2018. Um, the U.S. regulators and prosecutors are still focused, uh, obviously, on foreign-based banks with a U.S. presence. Uh, we've seen some major actions there, uh, and we've seen uh, some sort of increased regulatory focus on uh, suspicious action, uh, suspicious activity reports, the SARS, and the failure of gatekeepers to uh, sort of monitor and keep up with their uh, compliance programming. Um, we, built, we saw FINRA, the SEC, uh, basically announced anti-money laundering efforts uh, in focus in 2018, and that's going to continue into uh, 2019. They're joined together in bringing more focus on this uh, issue, and it remains as an examination priority for 2019 uh, from the SEC's Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations. So we're going to see more SEC AML-type controls uh, enforcement actions. Uh, there have been an emphasis in some of the enforcement actions on uh, the ability of an AML compliance program to address uh, specific risks that an entity, uh, an institution might, might face. So, for example, in February of 2018, uh, the DOJ announced uh, its settlement with uh, U.S. Bank Corp., where they entered into a two-year deferred prosecution agreement, um, and that included... Uh, FinCEN, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and the Federal Reserve in the settlement. And basically, the Justice Department uh, was able to establish that the company willfully failed to maintain an adequate AML program and failed to file suspicious uh, activity reports. Um, and they had failed, in particular, uh, to allocate sufficient staffing and resources to AML compliance and therefore, the Justice Department found that the, U the U.S. Bank Corp. was unable to monitor, investigate, and report a substantial number of suspicious uh, transactions. U.S. Bank pleaded guilty and agreed to pay. Well, they're not really pleaded guilty. They had a subsidiary plead guilty. Uh, but the U.S. Bank Corp. entered into a DPA, Deferred Prosecution Agreement. But they paid a total of $613 million dollars. Uh, and committed to improve uh, its Bank Secrecy Act, BSA, AML compliance program. Similarly, on March 12, 2018, the Federal Reserve Board ordered Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, a big global bank based in China, to improve its BSA, AML compliance program, citing significant deficiencies in a branch's 
AML Risk Management and Compliance Program, and Federal Reserve issued a cease and desist order upon consent and uh, noted that the branch had significant deficiencies in its AML Risk Management and Compliance Program, and they had to undertake significant steps to reform their AML policies and procedures. In that same month, uh, Elemental, uh, E-L-E-M-E-T-A-L, pleaded guilty and agreed to forfeit $15 million for um, failing to maintain a compliance program that may have prevented a $3.6 billion money laundering scheme. Uh, they pleaded guilty to a single count of failure to maintain an adequate anti-money laundering program in violation of the BSA. And according to the facts, Elemental purchased and refined gold worth billions of dollars from countries around the world from August 2012 to November 2016. And although they were subject to the BSA's requirement to establish an AML program, the company willfully failed to develop, implement, and maintain an adequate anti-money laundering program as required, despite the high risk of gold-based money laundering. Um, in 2018, U.S. authorities also uh, received uh, significant penalties from companies which did not cooperate with investigations or which misled authorities. Among the notable cases in this uh, category was the extension of a DPA for MoneyGram. On November uh, 8, 2018, MoneyGram and U.S. authorities jointly filed to extend MoneyGram's 2012 DPA, Deferred Prosecution Agreement, which had been originally set to terminate in November 2017 and was extended until November 2018, and now has been extended to May 2021. The MoneyGram also forfeited $125 million to settle allegations that the company breached its obligations under the DPA, and they misled U.S. authorities as to the nature of fraud issues the company faced. Uh, MoneyGram did not adequately dis disclose its weaknesses in its fraud interdiction system and instead told uh, the Department of Justice that the rise in consumer fraud transactions was related to external circumstances, which was really not true. Um, and in 2018, we had the case against uh, Rabobank, which pleaded guilty for concealing deficiencies in its AML program and for obstructing the examination of the U.S. Department of Treasury into Rabobank. On uh, February 7, 2018, the DOJ announced that the Rabobank National Association had agreed to settle criminal charges uh, in this regard. They entered into a plea agreement, and uh, they admitted to obstructing the OCC's investigations, investigation and their examination, and they agreed to pay penalties of over $369 million. Interestingly, Rubblebank's former vice president, George Martin, entered into a two-year DPA. For an individual, this is pretty rare to get a DPA. On December 14, 2017, he was terminated, uh, or this was terminated on December, in December of 2018. Um, the bank's policies and procedures basically restricted its internal investigations into suspicious transactions, and there was improper monitoring, investigation, and reporting of suspicious uh, violations. Um, so this was a this was a real sort of obstruction case along with deficiencies 
And if you read the facts of the case, it's actually pretty offensive when you, uh, when you get down to it. Um, so we, I mentioned the repeat offender in terms of MoneyGram. Another repeat offender was uh, Capital One. Uh, Capital One entered into a second settlement with uh, authorities for alleged violations that post-dated its uh, initial 2015 action against the company. Uh, and they, they failed to comply with an initial consent order by not adequately addressing uh, compliance programs deficiencies and by not filing required SARS. Uh, so these instances uh, of repeat offenses should serve as a warning to any company that's currently facing uh, an enforcement action or is uh, under a, a cease and desist order of some sort. And uh, U.S. Uh, prosecutors uh, like to prosecute uh, repeat offenders, and uh, so they're, they're wanna, they want to see robust AML compliance programs. They don't want to see situations like uh, we had uh, in the U.S. Bank Corp. where there were whole, totally inadequate uh, resources. So uh, we talked about uh, uh, the need for a compliance program and uh, some of these uh, cases that occurred uh, in terms of that. There was also some focus on compliance gatekeepers. Um, and uh, they went, we had enforcement actions uh, this past year uh, that went after uh, gatekeepers, including AML compliance personnel. Uh, so it's important to look at these actions. Uh, a lot of these were involved the SEC. Um, for example, in March of 2018, um, the SEC settled through administrative orders charges against uh, Chardon Capital Markets and Chardon's clearing broker, uh, Industrial and Commercial Bank, uh, which we just had talked about, for failure to report suspicious sales of billions of penny stock shares over a nine-month nine period. Uh, the chief compliance officer from uh, 2008 to 2017 was charged with willfully aiding and abetting and causing uh, Chardon's uh, AML violations. Um, and the parties agreed to uh, a $1 million penalty. Uh, the bank, the Chinese bank, paid $860,000, and the individual, the chief compliance officer, was required to pay $15,000 to settle those, that case. So more than a, in a two-year period, what happened in that case, Chardon liquidated more than 12.5 billion shares of a penny stock seven of its customers, and the uh, industrial Chinese bank cleared the transactions. SARS were not filed, even though there were serious red flags uh, that were applicable to heavy trading and low-priced uh, securities. Um, interestingly, the chief compliance officer was responsible for implementing the program and which required him to investigate potential red uh, flags and the order claims that he failed to recognize and invest, investigate uh, these uh, red flags. Um, we also had a, a SEC and FINRA action against Aegis Capital Corporation in March of 2018 uh, against the investment bank and a broker, uh, and this is a failure to file SARS on numerous suspicious transactions Aegis agreed to pay a $750,000 penalty and retain a compliance expert. FINRA also announced the settlement with Aegis that for $550,000, uh, 
uh, for its inadequate supervision of a AML compliance program designed to detect red flags. Two Aegis employees settled with the SEC as well for willfully causing and aiding and abetting these violations. Uh, they not only caused the violations, uh, one of them was the CEO, and uh, they agreed to pay penalties, the two individuals, of 20000 and 40000 uh, respectively. A third individual uh, was uh, charged, and that case is um, still pending. Finally, one last note uh, that I wanted to remind everybody about is the use of uh, money laundering charges in FCPA cases. So uh, this basically, under the FCPA, we all know that uh, receipt of bribery by a gover foreign government official is not chargeable. It's not uh, chargeable under the FCPA. There's actually a Fifth Circuit 1991 case, uh, U.S. v. Castle, that held that. So foreign officials cannot be prosecuted uh, for conspiring to violate the FCPA. Um, and so uh, it, but the prosecutors are using the Money Laundering Control Act, and that's 18 U.S.C. sections 1956 and 57, and using uh, corruption uh, as a specified unlawful activity. Uh, and so the, pro the prosecutors are not required to establish that they violated the special specified unlawful activity to violate uh, 1956 or 1957. They can take the facts in the FCPA investigation and prosecute individuals. And they've been doing that for a while, but we are seeing more and more use of that in 2018. Uh, in 2018, for example, they used it against uh, the Petavesa defendants in unsealing an indictment of five defendants for their alleged participation in a bribery scheme involving uh, Venezuela's uh, Petavesa. Uh, and all five defendants are charged with uh, money laundering uh, in connection with, with that. Um, they also, in April of 2018, charged Jose Larea who was indicted uh, as part of the um, Petro-Ecuador investigation. And he, uh, the indictment alleged, alleges um, that there were payments made by another defendant to uh, Mr. Laria in, uh, in, in terms of his involvement in a conspiracy to commit money laundering in connection with the bribes paid to Petro-Ecuador. We also saw on June 27, 2018, uh, Egbert Kuhlman, uh, a former official of the Aruban Telecom Company, uh, Setar, uh, he entered into a plea agreement sentenced to 36 months for accepting $1.3 million in bribes from a Florida executive, Lawrence Parker. Uh, and so this was, again, a money laundering plea. Um, we also had on August 14, 2018, Luis Gustavo Riviera, uh, the Colombia's former national director of anti-corruption. And I always uh, thought the irony of this, that uh, the, uh, the person responsible in the Colombian government um, for anti-corruption enforcement uh, took a bribe from a Colombian lawyer uh, and was uh, charged with conspiracy to money launder. Uh, with the intent to promote foreign bribery. So uh, this was an undercover sting operation as well, um, and uh, he was arrested when he showed up uh, in uh, Miami. Uh, 
So um, the use of money laundering, uh, I think, is going to continue in terms of bribery enforcement as well. Well, that was just a quick overview. I hope uh, I just wanted to give you a sense of sort of the compliance trends, the enforcement trends. Uh, and I would mention again, uh, if you do need any assistance in this area, please feel free uh, to contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you at the next on our next episode. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goal.